an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animals, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Kate Benjamin, whom you could call a cat lady, though in this case the term would be strictly intended as a compliment. For one thing, she provides over housepanther.com, a sprawling website showcasing an array of feline-oriented designs, accessories, other products, information, and a number of resources. For another, she's co-written two popular books, Catification and Catify to Satisfy, both devoted to cultivating cat-centric rooms, spaces, and homes with an emphasis on design and style. For yet another, she shares her two-bedroom condo with 13 cats. So yeah, Kate knows cats. We'll seek her expertise on a host of topics, including her recommended litter box strategies, particularly regarding multiple cats in a smaller home or condo. This might dovetail with a broader discussion of some good inventive ways to use limited living space most effectively from a cat-human point of view. And probably other topics, too, including uh, cat questions you might have for her when I speak with Kate Benjamin in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A program you know later in today's show, I'll be giving away a pair of tickets to National Geographic Live, Wild Hope with Amy Vitale at the Straz Center on February 21st. And this evening at the Straz, photographer and filmmaker Amy Vitale shares her stories of the reintroduction of white rhinos and giant pandas to the wild, as well as Kenya's first indigenous-owned and run elephant sanctuary. That'll be later in today's program, probably hooked to name that animal tune. Meanwhile, otherwise, later in today's program, I'll speak with Jeanette Edwards, founder of Friends of the Pelicans, who will fill us in on a decision by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, or FWC, who have recognized that fishing on the Sunshine Skyway Bridge places pelicans in extensive jeopardy, chiefly because the fishing hooks that cause the pelicans serious injury or death. So the FWC plans to propose a ban on two types of fishing hooks, but just a ban for three months. The Friends of the Pelicans' position, as I understand it, is that this ban is ineffective, too, too brief, and impractical to enforce. So a little more about this from Jeanette Edwards later in today's program. Right now, though, let's discuss cats, particularly designing fabulous, stylish living spaces for cats and a slew of other feline-centric topics with Kate. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Kate Benjamin on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Kate. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals. You were on the show uh, several years ago, and uh, it's great to have you back. And, um, you know, I was thinking in preparation for speaking to you this morning, there was a time in the early years of the show 
where I had to learn not to ask guests who were particularly passionate about dogs or cats or both how many animals live with them because back then there were like municipal ordinances that limited the number of animals that could live in a home. So the last thing people wanted to do was tell the dopey radio host how many animals they had living with them since that was often way over the legal limit. But I'm guessing you don't live where there's such an ordinance or at least maybe if so you stopped kind of caring about it some years ago. Uh, yes, that is in fact the case. Um, a kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy. Um, yes, yeah, so I live in Phoenix, Arizona, and I do own my own condo. So that kind of gives me the ability to design the space in such a way that I can accommodate that many cats in a way that really keeps them happy and healthy and is fine to live in. We're not talking about a hoarding situation. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and I wasn't thinking about that, and we'll certainly get into some of the design elements and things that you do create there for them or have created for them. But I was just thinking more that, like uh, like I say, sometimes there were, you know, regardless of the actual circumstances of, of the living space, that there was ordinances or some kind of uh, laws that said, hey, you could only have three cats in this house, and if you had more than that, you know, you you'd be in trouble or you'd be in violation or whatever. So yes. I used to ask I people how many... that is the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, that... But, I mean, like I say, I mean, for for various publications and television and radio and other kind of interviews, I think you obviously don't, don't seem overly concerned with having people know the, the number of, of cats that you live with. So, obviously, there's there's not much risk of anything bad happening there. Right. And I think that has changed over the years as more and more people have embraced this idea of catification and really designing a, a beautiful home where the cats can thrive. Yeah. So with that in mind, though, when people do learn of, of the 13 cats, um, are you kind of sheepish about it or do you sort of treat it as a something of a bragging right or somewhere in between? Well, you know, of course, it depends on who you're talking to. So yeah, if I if I feel like it's somebody who might kind of certainly judge me for that, I'm I'm not necessarily going to give the number. Um, but most of the people that I associate with are also animal lovers, cat rescuers, and so it's kind of the norm to sort of discuss all the different cat personalities that you live with and and how you design your home to accommodate that. So right. yeah, it it really does depend who you're talking to. <laughs> for sure. So. Kind of walk us through a little bit uh, how the the cat population grew, and and especially if there was along the way like any kind of examination process, like you know I could see early on like okay three or four cats that's pretty reasonable, but what's the internal dialogue like when the count gets to seven or eight cats or more? Um, how does that how does that work, or how do you how do you kind of sort that out? Well, I think there's kind of a, a number in there where you think where one more really isn't going to make a difference. I'm um, guessing when you get to 10, uh, I don't know if that's the number, but I would think, you know, once you hit 10, it's like, well, what's 11 or 13 at this point? Yeah, somewhere around there. And then when you're closer to 15, then you really have to start to pull back. Yeah. And in my case, I was just doing a lot of cat rescue. I was doing a lot of TNR. I kind of became the go-to person that if somebody found a batch of kittens, they would call me because I was connected with a lot of rescues. I still am. And in many cases, I want to get those cats into the system. So I'll either foster them or I'll get them to another foster home, get them adopted out. 
But every once in a while, I was working with particularly challenging cats, um, and I have several of them still, that maybe were not going to be adopted. If they went to a shelter, they were probably going to be euthanized because of behavior issues or, you know, just kind of quirky things. And so I wound up actually taking on a lot of very challenging cats, which has been good in terms of understanding what cats need and, and how you can really help them come out of their shell, help them with their behavior issues. So it's, you know, I don't recommend it for everybody. I don't recommend this many cats for people who are, you know, have a lot of other responsibilities. It's For me, it's a full-time job. So the other piece for me was that because my whole business revolves around designing products and spaces for cats, having a lot of them is helpful because I have a lot of testers and models and and my whole condo is very much like a working laboratory of catification. Yeah, no, for sure. So, so basically, uh, some of the some of those thirteen were cats that at one point you thought, well, he or she is just here to kind of temporarily until you know uh, what what might have been a foster situation, at least in your mind, becomes you know a, a cat get, that gets placed in a new home. But again, I guess for behavioral reasons that you've noted or other reasons, some of those cats uh, did not relocate. Exactly. So the, the, the good old foster fail, right? For yeah. A couple different reasons. Sometimes because you kind of realize, wow, somebody needs to be really committed to taking this cat because they have behavior issues. And then, of course, a few of them stayed because I just fell in love with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what, what what's the... Um, what would be kind of the most common behavioral things that you thought were um, just a little probably too much for just your a- average adopter to, to sort of take on? Well, I think aggression, um, which can stem from a number of different causes. Uh, in, of course, in a multi-cat household, it may just be a situation of, you know, a cat would prefer to have a smaller population. Um, and so... In many cases, you have to rehome a cat, but we have been able to work with all of our cats who maybe are a little, like, they don't get along with all the other cats. Um, And then there's just fearful cats. Um, Several of mine came from feral colonies, and maybe they were just a little too old or just a little too feral to socialize. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're still a little wary of people. But I have uh, the opposite, too. I have cats that were completely feral who are now our biggest lap cats. You know, they just want to be snuggling all the time. Oh, wow. I feel, you know, I just feel like every cat has potential and deserves the best life possible. And you want to work with them and you want to see what their individual personalities and quirks are. And I find it fascinating, and that's just kind of what I want to inspire in other people is, like, get to know your cat and really understand what they need and what they want. Yeah, cool. Well, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Kate Benjamin, who presides over HousePanther.com, a sprawling website showcasing an array of feline-oriented designs and accessories, other products, information resources and so on. She's also co-written two best-selling books, kind of related, called Catification, and the other is Catify to Satisfy. And uh, she and her husband share their two-bedroom condo with 13 cats. So uh, she's definitely steeped in the cat world and from all different kind of angles. If you have a question for Kate or would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So how many black cats are part of your feline family? Oh, those are my favorite. 
So we currently have five solid black and two tuxedos. Okay. So pretty much half, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I think most of the photos that I've seen, just eight to ten, all be sort of black hats. And I thought, uh, you know, I was wondering if, if if it was a clean sweep or just kind of a heavy ratio. But I also thought that, again, given your kind of a mission that you described earlier about trying to help cats and find homes for them. Uh, I think most people know by now that, that black cats are typically the, the uh, at least in many uh, shelters and rescues and other places, the last to be adopted. So I thought maybe you had a particular emphasis on black cats that sort of counter counterbalance that. That is definitely true. And I certainly hope, you know, that I've done my part to, <laughs> to home a lot of black cats. I do hope that that is changing. You know, that's just such a stereotype. And, you know, it's cats, it's, their personalities are also individual and the color really shouldn't matter at all. Really, they're, they're all just so interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. So, uh, but it's, it's good to, uh, to, to see like, you know, a picture where there's three or four black cats all hanging out in one part of the catified structure <laughs> or another. So, um, so, so since you and I kind of both use that word, tell tell us more specifically what it means to catify a room or a home or a condo. Yes. So prior to Jackson and I writing the first book, Catification, there was uh, quite a bit of literature on environmental enrichment for cats, which is kind of the nuts and bolts of how do you design a space, either a residential space or a shelter space, to accommodate a cat's uh, needs to reduce their stress. But nobody had really taken into consideration the aesthetic piece of it, right, the part that makes people want to do it. So in a residential situation, making catification aesthetically pleasing will make somebody want to do it because if they think it's going to be ugly, it's going to look like the crazy cat lady, they won't install the things that the cats need and they don't want their house to look horrendous when people come over you know there are people who are it's just much more in tune with that and in a shelter situation if you don't give any consideration to the aesthetics and how it looks and how it functions for the caregivers um, it actually affects the experience of the shelter and the branding image to the public to the potential adopters so for catification takes both that the mechanics of the environmental enrichment as well as the aesthetics and the functionality for the humans and puts them together. And so that really kind of changed things when we first started using the term catification because people really took it on as a challenge to build things in their homes that are beautiful and that give their cats what they need. So we're talking about climbers and scratchers and hideaways and beds and where does the water dish go and where does the food dish go and how do you design that environment in a way that gives your cats what they need but that you love it too so you're happy to live with it. And we should also quickly note that the Jackson you refer to is Jackson Galaxy, so the co-author of, of both your books, and and uh, people know him from TV and uh, some years ago he was a guest on the show as well. So... Um, so I, I guess one of the questions would be, too, about catifying. Um, is there a way to, uh, especially when it comes to a large number of cats, let's, let's take your situation for just off the top of my head. Um, is there a way to quantify the impact on cats of catifying their living space? For, for example, you know, I would assume that, that your 13 cats, or most of them anyway, 
probably coexist more harmoniously because of the catification of of your condo. But is there any way to uh, document that or prove that or anything? I mean, even just anecdotally, I mean, obviously you couldn't say, well, what would happen in the absence of that because all the cool catification designs and and things, climbers, whatever, already there. But, I mean, probably before you completed that or before you embraced catification all together, you might have had some experience of what cats, especially a large number of cats, would do in that situation as opposed to in a catified space. Yes, and actually there is scientific literature to support um, the effects of uh, environmental enrichment on cats, uh, mostly done in a shelter situation. This is the work of several of the shelter medicine programs, the work of Kate Hurley and Julie Levy. They have looked at the effect of different elements of catification, like hiding boxes and raised surfaces um, on the cat's stress level. So you can do the same thing in your residential situation where you look at a cat's stress level. And there are these different stress scales. Um, the Fear-Free Program offers a lot of different tools for understanding um, the stress levels of cats where you look at sort of their body posture and their eyes and their ears and their tail movements. And you can really see if they're given the environment that makes them more comfortable, a reduced stress level. Also at home, you could count the number of interactions, negative interactions between cats. So if there is fighting and, and hissing and hiding and things like that, you know, that counts towards, you know, this is a negative situation. So if those things can be reduced by what you do in your home, you're heading in the right direction. Yeah, because going back to what you were saying earlier, if some of the cats that you had brought in at one point maybe hoping to briefly foster and adopt out, and then some of those were foster fails for one reason or another, but a lot of times it's not because of behavioral issues. Um, so I would think a cat with a behavioral issue when he or she is around 12 other cats, uh, on the one hand, that could be more pronounced just because of the sheer number of cats in a maybe relatively small space, but I guess the point that I'm, I guess, trying to explore here is with in a catified space, perhaps the opposite would be true. Yes, that's what I'm finding, um, especially because I do have so many challenging cats. We have so many different walkways and perches and cat trees and towers and hiding boxes that the cats all have a place to go. We're also very lucky to have a large patio on the back of our condo. So that's an enclosed patio specifically for cats. Um, so there's a way for them to go outside, but they're still safe. They're not roaming free because we don't let our cats out roaming free. Yeah. Um, and so anything you can do like that to basically increase the space. And by adding vertical space, you're doing that. You're creating extra places for them to go so that the cats aren't fighting for the same resources, resources being the prime napping spot or the cool hideaway. Um, and really doing it in a way that, that you love. Like I said before, you know, you, you make it part of the environment in a seamless way. Yeah. And um, do you find that, that some or maybe most uh, of the cats go to a certain part of the, um, the condo uh, regularly and, and maybe kind of just hang out there partly because maybe some of them are 
again, either kind of aggressive or have other behavioral issues. Like, hey, I'm not really into hanging, but I, I do like over here. I feel safe and protected, and this is kind of my my space that I've carved out for myself. Do they go most of them the same place every day for X amount of hours? Definitely. And it, I mean, it changes over time. It also depends on where my husband and I are because lots of them like to be near us. So if I'm working in the office, I have, I'm surrounded by different perches and beds and things. So there could easily be all 13 cats in here and none of them would be touching. You know, they would, they all would have their own space. That's so great. Between, yeah, the bedroom, the catio, the living room, and the office, they all sort of move around. Some of them have their favorite spaces that they really consider their safe spaces. Um, and we talk about that in the second book, in Catify to Satisfy, this idea of a home base or base camp. And um, it's really that place where if, some, if guests come over, if somebody rings the doorbell, if there's a storm, it's a room or a place where your cat feels most comfortable and where they will go as their safe harbor. And so the bathroom, <laughs> one of our bathrooms, we don't shower in it because we have a giant cat tree and then a big walkway all the way around. Is It's kind of like their bunker, right? So if somebody rings the doorbell, there are several cats that just immediately go there and that's where they feel safe. So you oh, really? Accommodate that. Just, yes, just, just automatically by virtue of the doorbell ringing, or and or somebody you know being at the door, knocking at the door, it's like, oh my god, I gotta, I gotta head for the bathroom. I, I don't know who these people are, but I don't want to deal with them. Yes, some of the, some, we definitely have certain cats that fall into that category, and then there are some that you know will greet you at the door too. We'll yeah, strangers. <laughs> right. Say, how can I help you? Yeah. What's what's your story? Yeah, yeah that's great. Are you here to feed me? <laughs> right. Yeah. What do you have? What did you bring? Yeah. So. Uh, no, that's great. And so, uh, what? What? Besides it being outdoors and yet enclosed at the same time, so safe. Are there different elements to the design of a catio than to the uh, interior spaces? Well, you want to have the same things: climbers, scratchers, um, enclosed spaces. It's great to have the litter boxes out there, but then you can you have a little more freedom to add some greenery, maybe some water features. Um, and then I'm just always looking for catification item, items for catios that are weatherproof, of course. We don't get a lot of rain here in Phoenix, but um, you might actually have a situation where, you know, there's rain coming into your catio. So I think it's stuff that's a little bit more durable and weatherproof. Um, but really, you just want to think about giving the cat activity things outside, so levels, places they can climb. And then also, do you want to incorporate a space for the people? So should there be a table and chairs where you have your morning coffee or a lounge where you take a nap or a hammock? Um, so really think of it a, a, just like as an extension of your, your home and catify it the same way. Well, I would think it goes without saying that naps have got to be super popular there amongst at least much of the population, whether it's feline or human. Um, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I think we probably talked about this in, in our first conversation. Obviously, I'm covered in more or another in the books, but just for folks listening who might just be getting acquainted with you, Kate, um, kind of talk a little bit about when and how did your passions for cats and, and design start to kind of merge? Yeah, it was a really like a perfect storm. So I have a background. My undergraduate is from Cornell in design and environmental analysis. 
but then I mostly worked in marketing and graphic design and I went to graduate school for visual communication design and I worked in the product development um, department as well. And so after that, I was, I found myself as the director of marketing for a children's product company um, here in Tempe, Arizona, that made beautiful modern children's products. And so this was around 2005, six, seven, when there was this big movement in the children's product world to make things more aesthetically pleasing. So the attitude was just because you have kids, your house doesn't have to look like a daycare center. And I said, well, how come nobody's doing this for cats? And so I started a blog one night looking for beautifully designed, innovative cat products with the intention of just because you have cats, your cat, your house doesn't have to look like the crazy cat lady. And so I started finding a few individual small um, companies here and there that, uh, that, you know, had some beautiful things. At that time, I had three cats. So I had just sort of acquired some cats and I was decorating my home. And that, that's sort of what prompted me to, to start looking. Um, and then just nobody was talking about it. So um, I found a lot of beautiful things coming from Europe. There was, of course, gorgeous design for cats coming out of the Netherlands and Germany and, and Italy. Um, so I started writing about it and it just took off. There was clearly um, a, a, an audience for it. People were ready for cat stuff to look better. And so that was 2007. So that was quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. And in that time, since then, I have seen such a huge shift in the cat product industry where Small companies and large companies alike are making aesthetically pleasing, innovative products that really consider what the cat needs in all different design styles. It's just been thrilling to see this change. And then once the catification books came out, Jackson and I started seeing more and more people posting things on social media where they showed what they had done. And so it really was this amazing sort of journey um, because after I started the blog, that's then when Jackson's show started and he kind of tracked me down and said, Hey, you know, we should write this book together because um, I know, I know how to do the behavior side, but I don't know how to tell them how to make it look good. And so he was finding that if he worked with clients and he told them, well, you got to hang a shelf here and you got to put your litter box over in this corner, they would look at him like, no, that's not going to look good. I can't do that. And so he, he needed that design piece. And then that's when we sort of created this idea of catification. So since then, it's just been, you know, I've, I design a lot of products. I work with Primetime Pets to design a whole line of cat products that are my own. But I continue to just write about cool things that I find, inspiration, sharing ideas for how to create beautiful homes for cats. And it's just, I'm just thrilled to see how much there is now. Yeah, and we should note that House Panther, which we've mentioned a few times, is H-A-U-S Panther. HousePanther.com is the website for Kate and all her uh, designs and products and things that she's found and written about and highlighted and all all things uh, cat-related, of course. So um, so over the course of f- first starting the blog and getting more into Sort of, you know, at the really at the forefront of this of this uh, trend, which continues obviously to this day. What what did you find early on, and, and and obviously I guess it probably hasn't changed much. That cats seem to prize most in terms of uh, design and like sort of spatial matters. I mean, obviously I think they like to be off the ground. Um, and uh, but what what else as you were starting to kind of experiment and put this thing together in its infancy, what, what were you really struck by? Well, like, 
okay, they like this, so this is something I will create or I'll add this to this, and this will be a combination of two things. Yeah, definitely vertical space. That is something that makes cats more comfortable in their environment. If they can be up high, they can kind of see what's going on because keep in mind that cats are both predator and prey. So they're Mm -hmm. kind of always on guard for like, what's going to get me and what can I get? Yeah. And so, you know, if they have a better perspective, but not all cats want to be way up high in the ceiling, vertical space can just be 18 inches off the ground too. So a small perch, either something on the wall or something sitting on the ground just gives them that little sort of lift off the ground. And then the other thing I, I, I always say hiding space, but we, we don't really like the term hiding. We uh, Hiding is a negative thing. We don't want cats to be hiding in fear. But they do feel safer if they have an enclosed or semi-enclosed space, like a cocoon, where they can go to kind of decompress, to look out at what's going on around them, to be warm. The cats love to be warm. So in semi-enclosed spaces that have multiple entrances and exits are great, either as like um, like a soft bed that you can place anywhere you want or part of a tower or a box that goes on the wall that cats can easily climb in and out of. So vertical space, um, semi-enclosed spaces, of course, things to scratch on and soft surfaces, so blankets, things like that. And that's because they leave their scent on those scratchers and those soft surfaces. And their own scent makes them more calm. It reduces their stress. And so incorporating those things into, say, a piece of furniture, a lot of what we write about in the books is DIY. It's all stuff that you can build or make with simple materials that you get at the home improvement store. Or you can just look around at things you already have, too, and repurpose them. Um, It's just I encourage people, you just want to do it consciously, right? Because a cat will climb to the top of a shelf if they see it and they need a place to go. And if you don't want them up there, you either have to, you have to block that off, but you have to give them something that is for them. So maybe clear off that shelf and put a cat tower next to that bookcase and let them get up there easily so they don't hurt themselves. So cats will find what they need, but they will be happier if you can give it to them. And you will be happier if you make the decision instead of letting them make the decision. Yeah. Well, this raises a few questions, one, one of which is um, the thing you said about hiding spaces I thought was interesting. Like, how do you draw the distinction between, like, a cool enclosed space that they can come in and go from freely and what is what it sounds like more a negative uh, version, which is the hiding space? And w- w- why is the hiding space negative, and how do you, how do you make that distinction Yeah, a negative hiding space would be a place that you don't control or that you can't reach and where a cat looks like they're hiding out in fear. So that would be like under the bed, way in the back or the back of the closet or underneath a desk where you can't reach them, like where they've crammed themselves into a tiny space to get away. So you have no control versus a nice um, hideaway bed that you choose to put maybe in a corner so they're feeling like they're still out of the action, but you're you're saying, hey, this is for you. And then you can slowly maybe move that more towards where you sit. Or, you know, if you do have a very fearful cat, you want to work with them in a way that gives them that safe zone, but you, but you control where is it, what is it, can I reach them if I need to, 
can I clean it when I need to, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, we definitely want to block off what we call the unders. So like mm-hmm. under the bed and in the back of the closet in those undesirable hiding spaces. And in that, like would the cat, the cat that would retreat to those places that we don't like, uh, would that, would, if they went somewhere else that was a place that you did control and create, would that mean that they would be less fearful or only that you would you you could see them more readily you could uh, you they would be more accessible so you could help them in whatever thing is causing them to feel spooked exactly and that's that's what jackson calls um the challenge line right so you're you're not just letting them hide under the bed you're giving them a place and then you're working with them you know you're you're making sure that they they know that they're safe and you're getting them to kind of come out of their shell and you're actually helping them become a better cat, right? To have a better life. And that's kind of a big change, I think, in, in cat guardianship over the years. It's like some people just, you know, get a cat and they just kind of forget about it. But this whole idea of like, what does my cat need? How do they work? How do they tick? What's interesting? And how can I create an environment that lets me get to know them better, lets me help them really blossom and live their best life? There's that difference between are they just surviving or are they thriving and living their best life? Just like, you know, any child or family member, you want them to be out and about and playing and interacting and not stressed out, not showing those signs of living a stressful life. Um, And so by having that sort of hideaway or whatever it is, that safe zone, that base camp, um, really giving them that, it, it gives you a chance to work with them. Yeah. And, and uh, so it sounds like you want them out, you want them uh, connecting and not retreating. Uh, and, and then depending on what else they need from there, you can address that. But, but um, as opposed to being super like r- r- spooked, reclusive type, uh, critter. Yeah. Yeah. And you can tell that like just by the way a cat is, is even resting, you know, are they kind of hunched in and up and alert there so that they can, you know, get away at any point? Are they kind of looking stressed and tense, tense, or are they lying on their side with their feet out and their head down and just snoozing and purring and really comfortable? I mean, you want to look for those kinds of behaviors and encourage however you can in the environment, encourage more of that. Yeah. Well, our, our uh, most recent uh, cat addition to the family, when he uh, naps a lot of the time, he is like on his back, all legs up. I mean, he couldn't be more vulnerable looking. I just thought, you know, I don't know if I've ever been that relaxed. I mean, that is, wow. that is super, uh, super relaxed. <laughs> but, um, but also uh, some of the cats uh, too, and I'm sure this is, happens commonly where there's also dogs in the house. Um, really, uh, you know, you, you go get like a, a dog bed. Like a, we have a dog that's unfortunately not doing super well medically. And so we just got him, got her a nice new bed. Didn't seem to have much interest in it. But, of course, the cat's been having a grand time there. <laughs> so, which I think is not, not uncommon probably. But um, Yes, true. So uh, one of the things that um, uh, just I think it was around mid-November, people may have seen because it, then it, it not only ran initially in the Washington Post, but then it ran a number of other publications around the country, was a, a profile of you. And a huge hunk of the piece 
sort of noting your unusual ratio of cats to living space, dealt with your litter box strategies and techniques. Um, and you really obviously do have unusual expertise in this realm. So uh, if you're not too tired of uh, recounting some of this, would you be willing to share some of that um, expertise at the moment? Absolutely. I can talk about litter all day. Well, yeah. When you have, <laughs> when you have this many cats, it's just a necessary evil. So, yeah, I mean, that definitely is, you know, the big kicker for a lot of people when they get a cat is, well, I now have to have a litter box. And, yes, you do. You just do. We are very lucky to have that catio, which is where the majority of our litter boxes are. And there are two entrances, um, from the, one from the living room, one from the bedroom. And so the cats go out there. They have giant litter boxes out there. I actually use uh, the big cement mixing tubs because you get them at, the, at Home Depot. And that they're perfect for scooping because they're for scooping cement. And they're very nondescript, so they're not particularly fancy, um, but they're very functional. Uh, and easy to clean, inexpensive to replace if they do, you know, get scratched up over time, but they are fairly durable. Um, and so, so, so sorry to interrupt, Kate, but yeah. so just so I'm clarifying. So the primary litter boxes um, in the catio are not, in fact, or, or at least uh, intended to be uh, litter boxes. They're, they're mixing cement uh Yes. Boxes that you've yep. just said, hey, this would be ideal, and it sounds like it, it sounds like it really is. Yeah, they really are ideal because they're the right height for a cat to easily walk in and out of. They have a curved bottom, so it's super easy to scoop, and they're very thick, heavy plastic, and they're like fifteen dollars. Um, and so they're. I just have used those for years out on the catio, where you know I don't I don't have that in my living room or in my office. In my office, I have more aesthetically pleasing litter boxes, like the, the Cove litter box from Top and Paw I love. I think it's beautiful. It has a built-in place for the scoop and the little dustpan. It has a nice high-sided, um, like, a, like a guard, so for the cats that like to kick the litter out. Um, so because any time, you know, litter, I think the biggest situation, there are so many factors to think about when you're choosing a litter box and which litter goes inside it. Um, but the biggest factor is always tracking, right? So uh, inside, um, out on the on the catio, I like to use a nice clumping litter. I love the Smart Cat litter from Pioneer Pet. I think it, it clumps beautifully. It is made from grass seed. It's totally sustainable. It's my favorite. Mm. Um, but inside, I've been using recently um, a crystal litter from Ultra Pet because it doesn't track as much. Um, it's because it's, it's, a, a you know, a larger pellet. So you kind of have to think about, am I using a, a pellet litter? Am I using a crystal litter? Am I using a clumping litter? What's that substrate? I avoid clay because I personally am a two-time cancer survivor and, uh, clay litter has a lot of really negative stuff in it. So, um, I think it's not healthy for us. I think it's not healthy for the cat. Um, so I'm always looking for non-clay natural litters, um, that are also sustainable, but there, there's just, it's, you have to have a system set up that makes it easy for you to scoop, which means don't hide the litter box way down in the basement where you never go because you'll yeah. never go down there and scoop. Have it somewhere where you can get to regularly and then have all the tools you need at your fingertips. So fresh litter, bags, the scoop, a broom, uh, you know, any cleaning supplies to do quick cleans. Um, so it's just part of your daily routine because... If you don't scoop that box, you're going to have behavior issues. So setting up your litter environment 
will help with that. And and Kate, do you have a kind of a rule of thumb uh, about ideal number of boxes to cats kind of ratio? Well, the rule of thumb is absolutely one per cat plus one. So wow. that works okay. to a certain number. So I don't actually have that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think that that is a great rule. And if you are a normal person with like three cats and a, and a reasonable size home, you should have four litter boxes. And really it's the idea of it's because there's, there's always probably one clean, right? So if you have something like the litter robot or some other automatic cleaning box, that kind of helps out because that is always going to clean itself after. I don't have any automatic cleaning litter boxes just because I have a system. Um, I'm, you know, I'm really big into deep cleaning litter boxes periodically, and it's easier to do that with just plain open boxes. Yeah. You also have to think about an open box versus an enclosed box, which is something that a lot of people want to hide the litter box, and that may be absolutely fine for your cat. But you have to pay attention to what they're telling you. If you get some a piece of furniture and you hide your litter box in it and your cat is now not using the litter box, then that is not going to work for you. It's so too, I, too I clever by that. half at that point, it sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, a, you, it's about options. You want to yeah. have open, closed, different litters, different locations, and and I think you'll be fine. Yeah. But it is interesting about the automatic ones that it sort of works within a more conventional box than an automatic box. Yeah, and it depends on the cat, too. You know, if you have a cat that has absolutely no problem using it, the idea of always having a clean litter box is great. I mean, that that is that kind of where that comes from, this automatic scooping litter box you just have to dump the tray like you know once a week if you only have one cat um you know that's it's a great technology but um sometimes hard to clean (laughs) yeah no that's the thing i mean i think they've they've looked like and seemed like kind of a slightly mixed bag because it's you know at first you think about like well well, wouldn't that be great it's automatic and then just take the thing out and you know simple easy but I'm not sure in practice it actually works, or they, at least in many cases, don't work quite quite as effectively as, as we all might like to think when we first heard about them. There's a lot of improvements and innovation in the whole litter world in general, everything from the type of litter, the tracking, the boxes. Um, you know, I, just, I have so many ideas. Someday I will hopefully get to them or, you know, work with some other companies that are that are doing these these litter innovations, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like there might be a, the makings of another book here at the rate we're going on the, <laughs> on, on Kate's uh, catifying for litter boxes or something. But um, so <laughs> I, I guess given that there's 13 cats, I have to ask on a given day, how much time do you devote to litter box maintenance? Well, luckily my husband helps, so okay, um, good. I try to get him to, you know, as soon as he gets home from work. But the ones that I have in my office where I sit for most of the day, um, you know, if I notice they need to be scooped, I have everything I need to scoop them right away. So yeah. it's always a it's a question of proximity and schedule and, and just trying to, to work it into your daily routine. And on a kind of related note, one of our emails that came in a little bit ago was um, saying... Can you please address litter box strategies for low-income elderly cat lovers? Well, definitely this um, 
this idea of using the, the, the cement mixing tubs is a great, if you're not, you know, or actually, I mean, your standard plastic litter box is not very expensive. So in terms of actually setting that up, um, if you like a pellet type litter, um, which is uh, you often like a pine pellet that breaks down, it doesn't clump, but it absorbs the liquid, it breaks down into sawdust, and then you just kind of have to dump the whole thing out. Um, wood stove pellets are the same thing. Just make sure they're not treated with any chemicals, hmm. um, but they will work the same way. I also, at one point, was experimenting with corn chicken feed, and I was buying it in like 50-pound bags from the feed store, and it works pretty well. Um, it's the thing about the corn-based litters is that they're treated and, they're, and there's a clumping agent added. They've actually done, you know, they've probably removed some of the dust. So the corn-based litters work a little bit better, but it's the same basic substrate. So um, you mm. can actually purchase things like that um, that, are, that will work yeah. similarly. Yeah. Cool. Well, you've definitely done some uh, serious research and some serious experimentation, and which makes sense given the circumstances. So uh, we have kind of reached <laughs> the end of our time. We've been speaking with Kate Benjamin. Again, the website is housepanther.com, H-A-U-S-P-A-N-T-H-E-R.com, for all kinds of information, a lot of the things we've talked about, some of the things we didn't get a chance to talk about. So even though we're over time, so maybe if you can try to answer this in 30 seconds or thereabouts, what is the best thing? about living with 13 cats? Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's nothing better than sitting down on the sofa and having three of them pile on top of you um, and seeing just their different personalities every day and how different every single one of them is and that and just really appreciating their spirit and their soul and connecting to them and getting to know them throughout their life. It's, it's I mean, I don't have human children. My cats are my, are my children. Sure. And they mean, they mean the world to me. That's great. Well, that's really cool. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for joining us again on Talking Animals. And uh, um, we'll talk again, I guess, when the Litter, litter Box uh, book is out. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. See ya. In a moment, I'll speak with Jeanette Edwards from Friends of the Pelicans about this movement afoot by the FWC to impose a ban on two types of hooks for fishing on the, sun, uh, the Sunshine Skyway Bridge to help protect pelicans from serious injury or death caused by the hooks. But the ban is just proposed ban is just for three months, with Friends of the Pelicans considered problematic in multiple ways. Jeanette Edwards will elaborate that in just a moment. Right now, that we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is Paula Poundstone who, like Kate Benjamin, lives with a large battalion of cats. Here's Paula with a piece called Cats Puff Up on today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. You know what I can't figure out? All my cats are indoor cats, and some of them are out-and-out fat and lazy cats. And uh, I don't know, why they puff up when they fight with each other? You know, I know, you know, they say, oh, cats puff up so they look bigger to their adversaries. But first of all, my cats all know each other. You know what I mean? They don't really believe for a moment that one of them got really big. <laughs> I mean, cats know about puffing up. That, did, they, did they think it was a trick only they knew? And the other cat actually just uh, got bigger in that moment? That doesn't make any sense. And it seems to me it must take a lot of energy to puff up. 
you know, I would, I, would think, I would think that they would just have a meeting and one day my head, fat, lazy cat, would just turn to the others and say, look at, from now on, let's nobody puff up. We already know about puffing up. We're not fooling anybody. If you puff up and I puff up, we're the same anyways. Tell you what, once a day, I'm gonna grab each of you with my front paws and kick at you with my back paws and you just take it. I tell you what, cats are no help whatsoever in terms of security, you know. Uh, you know, cats get the exact same look on their face for a big giant moth as they do for an axe murderer. Great, I'm either gonna get a hole in my head or my sweater. That was Paula Poundstone in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Cats Puff Up, taken from her album I Heart Jokes. Paula tells them in May. Now it's time to speak with Jeanette Edwards from Friends of the Pelicans about this proposed FWC plan. Demand two types of hooks for fishing on the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. This is Jeanette Edwards on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Jeanette. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's start by asking you to just to provide maybe a brief overview of Friends of the Pelicans. What is it and what is its mission? Okay. Well, Friends of the Pelicans, our mission is to protect the right of all birds, but mainly pelicans, to protect their right to live out their lives free from harm due to human interference, and that's mainly fishing line entanglement. So we, we do focus on helping uh, prevent fishing line entanglement. We try to educate anglers about what to do if they hook a bird, and then we also uh, try to have people on, stationed on busy piers like the Skyway Fishing Pier where we can assist anglers if they hook a bird and help them safely bring it in, remove the hooks and line, and then release it. So our main objectives are prevention, education, and prevention is um, our main objective. I got gotcha. you. Huh? Okay, so um, before we get into uh, the FWC's kind of announced plans regarding the uh, the Sunshine Skyway Bridge, for context, talk about what happens on the bridge on any given day in terms of, you know, um, does all fishing imperil pelicans? So the Skyway Pier is very unique. It's a actually a roadway. I don't know if people know, this was the old Skyway Bridge that went across Tampa Bay. So it was a four-lane roadway, and when the bridge um, collapsed into the water, they kept the north and south spans and made them into a fishing pier. So it's extremely long. The south pier is two miles long. It is almost 20 feet high from the water, and the fishing lines extend hundreds of feet out into the water. It's also the most popular place for pelicans. They come for the abundant bait that's in the water. So it's a constant um, collision, if you will, between yeah. the pelicans and the fishermen. It's inevitable that they're going to get tangled up in fishing line when they're out there. So is that kind of what prompted the FWC to propose this uh, ban that we're talking about today? Yes. It was the number of pelicans that have been documented to be tangled and injured during a two-year period. So these are pelicans documented going into rehab facilities and also, in addition, 
uh, we've documented and other people have documented the number of birds that have died in, from fishing line entanglement at the Skyway Pier. So this, I guess the question to, to sort of a layperson on, on this topic is that if that's what prompted the FWC to, to, to make a move, why is the ban for only three months? Well, that was a shock to us, to be honest with you. It okay. was, it, we were told it would be a 12-month ban. Uh, we had a private stakeholder meeting, and during that meeting, the uh, several fishing organizations suggested a three-month ban. Well, we don't agree with the three-month ban. It's a, it is definitely a 12-month problem out there. It's not just a three-month problem. So um, we originally were told it would be 12 months, and like I said, then it was changed suddenly to three months. So we are trying to get the word out that, um, you know, 12-month ban is important, and we are not the only organization in support of this. Audubon, Florida is 100% behind having a 12-month ban. They are circulating a petition asking people to sign the petition. Several local Audubon chapters are in support of this. Save Our Seabirds and other rehabilitation centers are, as well as the American Bird Conservancy, the Conservancy of Southwest Florida, the Center for Biological Diversity, and also the Florida Ornithological Society. Um, so we are, you know, not alone in wanting a 12-month ban, and there are thousands of citizens that support this as well. So with that in mind, just before we, I want to make sure we don't run out of time before hitting a couple of the th- more key things. Mm-hmm. So what, those of us that are concerned about animals generally, like people that l- listen to the show, um, what, what action could we take if we wanted to register some concern or, or have the FWC um, shift from the three-month to a 12-month ban? Okay. Well, this is still up in the air at this point, and there is a public workshop tonight from 5.30 to 8.30 where they can give their opinion, and if they are not able to speak or make the meeting, they can leave a public comment on the FWC website. And we have the link to both the meeting and the website to leave a comment. That is posted at the top of our Facebook page, so they can go to Friends of the Pelicans on Facebook, and they will see there. Um, in the post that is uh, in the post at the top of our page, they will see the link to both the meeting tonight, where they can give the link to leave a comment. Okay, well that's great. So just go find Friends of the Pelicans Facebook page, and you can get connected to that uh, virtual public workshop and find out more. The yeah. workshop again happens at five thirty today, and mm-hmm. people can find out more because I know there's all kinds of posts about this on on the Facebook page. So yeah. Okay, so I'm afraid we have kind of run out of our time, Jeanette. But we covered I think all the key bases. So this has been Jeanette Edwards from Friends of the Pelicans, and again you can find out more by going to Friends of the Pelicans Facebook page. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, Jeanette, and good you. luck with this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. Scott Elliott's up next after NPR News.